Hello and welcome to the New Zealand Initiative podcast. I'm Dr. Eric Crampton, Chief Economist with the Initiative, and we are talking transport policy today. With me again, we've got Scott Wilson, who's a transport expert, knows all about this. He's been consulting for decades in this area. And we're going to be going through the government's draft transport government policy statement. It's now out for consultation. It looks to me a bit of a mess. So when I'd run some initial numbers on it, it looks like there is a siphoning out of money from sort of charges paid by road users into all kinds of other things. But Scott will walk us through it and some of the things that are worrying him in it. So welcome, Scott. Thank you very much, Eric. Yes, I I think the latest GPS um, is almost indicative of what I think has become wrong with the land transport funding system and how it has evolved over time into, I'd say, a a bit of a monstrosity where uh, you have output classes added onto output classes, you have a growth in objectives, and you have a growth in sources of funding from from general taxation on top of the land transport fund. So you now have a system whereby we've gone from having four objectives to six objectives. There were two objectives under um, the previous national government. There were four under the previous Labour government. One of those objectives is maintaining and operating the system. Uh, it, it seems rather um, it seems rather flawed to have a system that doesn't just regard that to be at the very core of how it works. And in fact, that was what was at the core of the system for decades. Yeah. So if I step back to the mid-2000s when I was lecturing in economics and sort of public econ stuff, I'd go through the usual drill on how, okay, hypothecation is generally a bad idea. Hypothecation is just the idea that you get money put into these separate pots and you get kind of tin pot accounting schemes where you'd have like a tax on hipsters beard oil to fund Tieke recovery or something like that. And Treasury tends to hate it. It's a bad idea. But I'd always give the exemption saying hypothecation can make sense if it's the best feasible way of approximating user charging. And it looked, and I'd always give land transport as the example, right? Because we'd had an excise charge on petrol vehicles that was meant to cover basically the costs that petrol vehicles impose on the roads and a road user charge for diesels that would do the same thing. And it allowed variation by weight class so that Vehicles that put a lot more burden on the roads because they're heavier, they get a higher per kilometer charge, and that all gets hypothecated into a land transport fund that's meant to cover the cost of the roading system. And I'd always give that up as the example of, okay, well, here's something that you'd want to hypothecate because it's the best we've got for road user charging until the tech advances such that you can just run proper road pricing with a dongle in every car. But what you're telling me here is that the road user charging component of it, that's kind of falling apart, that there's not as much link anymore, and it's trying to meet a whole pile of other objectives. I think that's that's right, Eric. We, we had a system where from, if I take it from 1989, because that's when the sort of genesis of the reforms were in the system, what we had from 1989 was a system that was basically designed to ensure that road maintenance would be funded from road user fees. And as you said, uh, in the absence of technology and the cost supporting you know, full road pricing, road user charges and fuel excise were used to fully fund state highways half-fund local roads on the basis that ratepayers gained a you know, benefit from the local road network for access to their properties, and there would be some funding for public transport based upon the benefits that public transport funding delivers for road users and reduce congestion, particularly in the main cities. Now, I'm just going to pause there just so we can make that really clear. 
if people get off the road and into a bus, then that makes me happy as a road user because they're out of my way and there's less congestion for me. First best would be congestion charging, but if we don't have congestion charging, road users, at least hypothetically, are willing to pay at least something to reduce congestion, whether that's through public transit or building a bike lane that's separated out from the rest of traffic, where otherwise bicycles might impede free flow of traffic. Yeah, that's that's absolutely right. And so the funding system was set up so that the money that was made available from those charges would first cover maintenance and the subsidies for public transport uh, that were efficient. And and the way it was set up was that it wouldn't just be we'd ask for this amount of maintenance. A local authority would ask for a certain amount of money, would get it. There'd be a rule of run over it. So to say, well, have you have you done a appropriate asset management? Uh, how have you justified that? So road maintenance would be based upon a rational um evidence-based look at what was needed for the following year and uh, and then subsequently a three-year period. Capital spending was after that. So what was left over after maintaining the system was available for capital spending. And initially in the 1990s for a long period, um, there was a benefit cost ratio of five to one for that because things were quite tight. And part of the fuel excise revenue was going to general government spending. It wasn't all going into the fund. Uh, That was changed in 2008. Uh, But government was trying to get efficiency out of the system. Um, for several years, and once it set up a separate funding agency called Transfund in '96, um, it it provided more money into the system and allowed for more of the fuel excise to go into the land transport fund, and that was how the system basically worked through till about 2008. Now there were a couple of key changes in t- around 2008. The first was the merger of the funder and the state highway manager and the land transport regulator. It was done in two steps. Don't want to, no need to go into the detail about that. But New Zealand Transport Agency was originally, um, several years before that, three separate agencies, a funder, a state highway manager, and a safety regulator. And they were all combined in two steps. The second one was a change to the Land Transport Management Act, which meant that instead of the agency being allowed to make its own decisions about output classes and funding for different categories uh, to to achieve a safe and efficient transport system or indeed to meet overall strategic objectives, the minister could direct what the objectives were for land transport funding. And this is what the GPS is. So the minister sets out a series of objectives and each minister can do their own and they do it for a three-year period. And beyond that, the minister can determine what, how much money goes into each output class. Now, they obviously get advice on that and they can determine what the output classes are. They can name them different things and they can decide you know, how much or how little is in it. And we're at the point now where they determine that and there's an upper and lower limit for that. And on top of that, uh, the minister can then say, well, what are my real strategic, my strategic objectives here? And we saw it first under the previous national government with the roads of national significance where they said, look, well, you should, you should run an efficient system here and productivity and economic growth are important, but we really want you to do these roads. <laughs> and now what we've got is um, this government is doing this very much the same thing about you know, their latest one, has maybe about half the projects that, that National has proposed in the election and a whole lot of other ones. So you're saying we've got some objectives here, but we're going to tell you how much money you at each pot took those objectives. Oh, by the way, we want you to do this stuff too. 
So it's a lot more ministerial direction of land transport rather than leaving it to the transport agency to act on behalf of the road users who are coughing up funds to pay for the thing. That's right. And and because of the, I'd say, the stretching of, of what has been sought from the fund, it's absolutely clear that the money that comes from road users is not enough to pay for the objectives of, of the government and, in fact, not for, hasn't been for some years. So now with the GPS, we've got funding from the NZ UP program, which was set up by the government for um, recovery. We've got the Climate Emergency Relief Fund now having money put into it for walking and cycling. Uh, there is um, there is a grant, a separate grant to support the funding. There's a loan to support general funding. There's also there's been loans in the past for specific projects, um, such as the. Um, Tauranga Eastern Link Road is a toll road. There's a loan for that, which the toll is meant to be paying off. Now that seems logical and sensible, and there is a there is definitely a place for debt financing of major capital projects. In fact, it was a flaw of the system in the 90s that it really wasn't um, wasn't allowed. But we're at the point now where so much a high proportion of funding for the GPS is coming from general revenue. It is being um, specify for particular purposes and the core purpose of the system is getting blurred and getting lost. Yeah, you'd think that, well, I've been doing a bit of work recently looking at revenue bonds and local government funding and financing in the United States and there it'd be really common for something like a parking authority or a water authority to be able to issue bonds on its own back, backed by the revenues that it gets. So like the City of Albany, New York, the Albany City Parking Authority issued something like $25 million worth of bonds that were backed by the pledged revenues of the parking authority, and they used it to build a parking garage so the fees for the parking garage users pay the thing off over time. just seems weird that you wouldn't be able to pledge funds from the National Land Transport Fund that it collects from road users, whether through RUC or through fuel excise duty to pay off the bonds that would be raised, that'd be issued to fund new projects. You could also have tolls in there and have a flexible mix, but it's just weird that they never had that in the first place. Yeah, I just, this was, in the 1990s, it didn't have a, the reforms that didn't go ahead to commercialise uh, the road network would have allowed that. The, the road companies under the Better Transport, Better Roads proposal would have allowed um, them to borrow money against future road user revenue, set tolls themselves, and uh, it would have worked like that, but it, it didn't happen. Um, there was debt financing facilities have been allowed under the current system. They've been running, I think, since the Northern Gateway Toll Road, which, uh, which dates back to around 2000. 2007 has a debt facility from the Crown to pay part of the cost of that road. And the toll on that road now is is paying back um, that debt. But it's been a major flaw of the system that the pay-as-you-go system of funded capital from cash flow limits your, cap- your capacity to do large projects. However, we're at the point now where a system that was set up to do user pays to pay for the core of the system isn't doing it. Uh, the government is now, the, another objective is about resilience, um, which you can understand given the slips and, and, and the impact of storms. But this was something that used to be done before. There was funding for emergency works under the previous system. Money was set aside. Sometimes it would be overdrawn, sometimes it would be underdrawn, but it was understood there had to be money to deal with the effects of the weather and geology of of this country. And there's likely to need to be more because of climate change. But 
the government having to specify resilience. I mean, honestly, do you, do you really think if you didn't do that, that uh, like Waka Katahi would say, well, we're not going to reopen that road because we haven't got specified resilience as our priority. We've got uh, specified uh, you know, reduced emissions. And, oh, look, there's a few people driving now because the road's closed. I mean, that's that's silly, but, but it, it shouldn't need to be like this. It shouldn't be a system whereby objectives get specified the amount of money that goes to each output class gets specified. But what if there is something in one class that's actually high value uh, where there isn't enough money for it because the money's been directed into a lower value area? Um, Do do ministers really have the wisdom and foresight to be able to identify where this money should be going in the next three years? I'm not so sure they do. And in fact, that's what was thought in the 80s and 90s that really we, we don't have that foresight and you have to have the flexibility to be able to respond to changing conditions. Yeah, so I'm just trying to get get this all working in my head and fitting in with the existing schema. So as a potted history then, we had a National Land Transport Fund that first was paying for maintenance on the roads and then paying for new capital as sort of the residual. If they had money left over, they could build new roads. A national government comes in that really wanted more motorways, but... There was enough money in the kitty left after paying for maintenance to be able to fund those. So rather than increasing fuel excise and setting up proper debt funding for those roads through that setup, they used crown funding and roads of national significance to get those projects done because they couldn't see how to how to fit it in the existing funding mechanism. Is that basically where it started going wrong there? It, it started slightly before that. I mean, we got the GPS system under the previous Labour government. Yeah. So and they had specified buckets, but you know, to be honest, that that was in the last year of that government. So we didn't really see the much of the results of that. I mean, to, to the credit of the last national government, they did look at private financing and did apply that for a couple of projects. Now I've got you know, fairly mixed views about whether there's a lot of benefit in doing that, and that's largely because of the capability of of governments to be able to negotiate good contracts for PPPs. I think um, that, that's got to be questionable. You've got to think very long yep. and hard about whether you get get the efficiencies from that to make it worth it. But there is a bit of debt financing that they happened there, but there was a direction of money uh, from maintenance. Maintenance was flatlined, which has seen an issue about deferred maintenance now. Uh, but what we've had since then is the incentives are all um, skewed. So when the current government came into power, it wanted to obviously put a lot more into public transport and into rail. Uh, so it has directed money towards that. And a lot of big capital projects were cancelled. You know, some of those were low value, some of those were not. Um, so they got cancelled. And then they got a bit of a backlash about that. And uh, the example I know of is the Riverlink project in Hutt Valley, which is with the Mounting Interchange, where uh, they got a backlash and said, oh, no, we're going to fund it now from the NZ Up program. So all the work was run, done on that project. It was not far ready to go to go to tender. It got cancelled. Contracts thought, oh, okay, we're not doing this now. What are we doing? And then two or three years later, oh, well, we go to fund this project now. Now, what does that do for the cost of the project? Well, it escalates it. It puts uncertainty in the market for contractors. So we get more cost inflation. And we've had a lot of cost inflation in the sector. So every time it looks like there's going to be a change in government, you've got projects that may or may not proceed, depending upon the will of whatever the next government is going to be. But it also incentivizes that behaviour. So if you've been out of government for six years or so, it doesn't matter which side it is, and your priorities haven't been getting funded because you've like, you like, know, what you say, a lower value 
road or rail projects, then when you get in, you want to push those projects and advance them and direct funding to them because they won't get funded otherwise. Whereas before we had a system whereby the lower value projects would eventually get funded if they could be justified because there'd be growth and demand and and, beha- and behaviours would change over time, there'd be population growth in certain areas. Then a project like Transmission Gully in the 1990s, it was planned, wasn't going to be funded for 15 years, but we'll plan for it, we'll buy the land, we'll get the resource consents and in time it'll be worth building. That was the way the system worked. Um, nowadays, um, you'd have a system whereby you know one side would say, well, you're never going to do that. It's not worth doing it. It's against our priorities. And you'd do no planning for it. And then the other lot would come in and say, oh, no, we've got to build a project like this. We've got to accelerate it, pour money into it, and hope it gets started before the government changes, uh, and hope that it'll get built. That is not a recipe for an efficient, sustainable land transport funding system. Yeah, no, it sounds like a disaster. Now, you talked pre- previously about they, they're running a ruler across the accounts to make sure that they're getting value for spend. How did they decide how much money a driver would be willing to pay to have other potential drivers take a bus instead? Oh, well, back in the, in the days when you know, they were looking at passenger, passenger transport funding, this is around value of time and an estimate of what would be, what would be the effect if we did not have that service. So the key case was in Wellington that if we did not have passenger rail from the Hutt Valley to Wellington, what would be the effect on the roads? And you'd have to replace them with buses and the road would fill up, there'd be extra delays, some people would drive because they don't like, they prefer a train over a bus. Uh, some people would even bother going to work there, the, 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 the labour pool would reduce. So there is, there's, at the time there was basically an analysis of what the effect would be on travel time. And the effect would be quite significant because yeah, the main roads to Wellington are, are quite heavily constrained simply by geography. Neat. And do we have any sense of what those numbers would look like if that same ruler from back then were applied to the decisions being made now? Because it looks like they're spending an awful lot from road user funding into public transit. And I'm totally willing to pay it. Okay, I mainly drive into work. On a nice day, I'll walk. I'm willing to pay more than nothing to not have cyclists in front of me on Onslow Road going uphill. I'm willing to pay something for there to be a dedicated bike lane and a widening of the road so that I can drive by safely and the bicyclists don't have to worry and I'm not stuck behind three layers of traffic behind a bus that's waiting on a bicycle and the buses and the bicycles really seem to hate each other on that road. Anyway, it the amount that I'm willing to pay for that is more than zero but the numbers that are going through from excise and ruck into public transit seem awfully high. They are high, and I'm not sure whether the current funding system that we've got, I mean, it, it does not reflect benefits to road users. We've moved away from that. So the way that public transport funding is done today is not primarily assessing what is the benefit to the people paying into the system. It's about the benefit to all users. So it's the benefit to the public transport users as well. And that there is there is a, certainly a, a place for that and a value for that. But it's very difficult to see uh, the extent to which the current funding is reflected in what you would say is a social benefit, which is, you know, 
subsidising people getting around more generally versus a wider uh, a wider benefit in terms of the impact on on the network. And uh, I mean, if I take where Fairbox revenue is today compared to in the past, I mean, the, the domestic transport costs and charges study that the Ministry of Transport published earlier this year, uh, to very little publicity, I say, uh, said that in 2019, the Fairbox um, revenue recovery for public transport was in the 20s of percent. So something around 70 to 80 percent, depending on the mode you ride and where you are in the country, is being paid for by you know, road users and ratepayers. It used to be around 50%. So it used to be about 50% fare box, 50% uh, funding from the system, being regional councils and uh, NZTA and its predecessors. It, it's got to, it's a lot higher than that. And that doesn't reflect any real, it's not about free fares or anything like that. It just shows that there is a higher proportion of the cost is being paid for by other people and not those who are writing the system. And I'm not sure, we haven't really had a debate or discussion about you know, is that the right amount and, and where should that be? And some think it should be free. I think that's a I think that's crazy. I think that's actually got quite significant disbenefits, um, particularly for the environment. If we look at some experiences overseas, um, others would like to say it should be fully it should be fully user funded, and I don't think you can do that without road pricing. Uh, but th- there needs to be a, a bit of rationalisation about where should we be putting money in public transport. Uh, certainly in the big cities, there is a lot of sense in having a, a good network with a lot of frequency because that encourages more people to use it. May encourage less car use. I'm not so sure about. Um, you know, whether you need high frequency services in, in some of the more regional areas where you know frankly the, the people who are not using uh, who are not driving are probably people who can't afford to have a car and you might think about other ways of providing services for them that kind of gets into another weird objective in the transport statement so you talked about the benefit of getting people out of cars and I can to- as a road user I'm willing to pay something for other drivers to not be there and not be in my way so I see some benefits there but they've got an objective of reducing the number of vehicle kilometers traveled. And if you do a search through the document, it shows up all, all over the place, reducing VKT. Um, what's up with that? Yeah, that, that, that's an interesting one because they've changed that. The objective they had from the emissions reduction plan was reducing VKT, I think by 20%, total VKT by light vehicles by 20% across the country. And part of that, was, and it would be much higher for the cities because it did indicate that in rural areas, I mean, you can't really you know, tell the farmer that they can't drive to town. Uh, they haven't got anything else. But in the cities, it would be much more. The objective has now become 20% reduction as uh, on the basis of forecast growth. So they've significantly diluted that. But what's yeah? What's the objective of that? The objective is meant to reduce emissions, to reduce the emissions target. Now you'd think, uh, is that the most efficient way of doing that by simply specifying that and how you are going to achieve that? Are you going to achieve that through road pricing? Well, no one's saying that. I mean, even if you had congestion pricing on the scale being talked about for Auckland, Wellington, and Tauranga, it it would make a very small dip um, across the overall figure. Uh, how else are you going to do that uh, if you're not going to increase fuel excise and ruck by uh, eye watering amounts? Um, you're not going to achieve much. I, I don't. I simply don't know how they could achieve it. And if there means to be emissions reduction, it's at what cost? The reduction of mobility of of, of hundreds of thousands of people. Well, it seems even worse than that, right? It's incoherent as a starting point. So a vehicle kilometer traveled by an EV doesn't have any emissions. And if your goal is reducing emissions, like why are you even targeting vehicle kilometers traveled? Because some of them are EVs and some of them aren't. And 
even more importantly, we've got emissions trading scheme and transport is covered by the emissions trading scheme. So if there are fewer emissions credits purchased by petrol companies on behalf of drivers when they go to the pump and fill up, well, it frees up credits for somebody else to use, right? So it, it's the it's a bad way of achieving a bad objective. I'm just trying to think, well, if, if you had a goal for like the a hospital to have, well, treat fewer patients, <laughs> right? Or it's, it's kind of... It feels like setting that kind of objective for a transport system. Make sure that the main, your main job is providing services for drivers and make sure that they reduce their demand by at least 20%. Like it's weird. It it is. It, it, it sounds to me, it's linked to the current GPS and the current GPS has one of its objectives is to, is to provide more funding for better option, transport options. Now better is a value judgment. And by this better doesn't mean driving your car. It's, this means riding public transport and walking and cycling. And whether they are better or not depends on what you're doing, where you're going, what time of year, what time of night it is, who you're with. And there's a bit of a value judgment here about how you should get around, which is not around thick, you weighing up your travel time, the cost of, of travel, what else you're taking with you and who you're with or where you're going, but it's just saying it's better not to drive. Uh, in some cases, it's better not to drive. Uh, it would be better if I if I didn't drive 100 metres down the road. Uh, but if I was driving to some farm in rural, rural Wairapa, then you know, I don't know what the better way is going to be. If, if there was another way to go, it would take me twice as long, if, if not longer. It, it doesn't it isn't coherent and it isn't linked to users. And I think we can always go back to, we've got a funding system that isn't really linked to what users want out of the system and what their user preferences are. And uh, road pricing will be some years off and certainly on a comprehensive network network basis. So we don't have the signals from users um, by paying as to what they do and or don't want to do. And so we have a system that is at the moment you know, far removed from, from what their preferences are. Whereas in other transport modes, in aviation, we know what users want because they pay fares. And um, you know, we know where they want to fly and when they want to fly and how they want to fly. Um, and in fact, in the freight sector, by and large, we know what those who can sign freight, how they want to move their freight. Most of it, they want it to go by road for reasons of cost, convenience, and other issues. A bit goes by rail and about the same amount goes by coastal shipping. But that is determined by the users and the funding actually follows that to some, to some extent. What, we've, what falls apart is the infrastructure side of it where those preferences aren't being seen in the funding. I mean, there, there is a lot of money in the GPS for the rail network as a whole. Now, whether that's good or bad is, is another question, but the bulk of that money is coming from general taxpayers. And for what? And what are you getting for that? And I'm, I'm not sure what the answer to that is. Uh, yeah, some would say you know, there's been neglect to the network and not a lot has been put into it and so it needs to be built back up. But built up for what? And to carry what and where and why? Uh, a good part of it moves timber, it moves logs, it moves milk, it moves coal uh, and containers. You know, what, is the, what is the thinking going on around funding this other than we want to keep the network? And if that's the case, that's fine. But why is this merged in with a system that's designed to keep the roads funded? So the draft transport GPS is up for consultation. You'd noted that incoming ministers can just set a new one whenever they want. Is there even any point in submitting on this one? Uh, we assume that there'll be, well, the, well the, an election is coming up in October. An incoming Labour Green government might have different priorities than what's outlined in the current GPS. So a new minister might 
rubbish the whole thing and have a do-over. An incoming National Act government would certainly have different priorities and could be expected to rubbish the whole thing and ask for a do-over. Is there any point in even submitting on this one a month out from an election? I, I think the only point I think there is in submitting on it is to send signals about where, um, where there is merit in it and where there are flaws and what the GPS delivers and what it doesn't deliver because those submissions will go to whatever the next government is and uh, if it is uh, look, it, it is likely to be one way, it will be a, a Labour government with, with the Greens and to Party Māori. And like you said, I, I think it seems unlikely that parts of that GPS would remain under that government, particularly some of the large road projects. Uh, but likewise, if, if it changed to be a national-led government, um, I, you could see it changing again. For And they've already, National's already indicated that. Uh, but I think sending signals about what a more rational approach would be would make a lot of sense. Uh, I think more fundamentally, the system needs a review. There needs to be a bottom-up review yeah. of the funding system and structure and uh, and where that links into where money comes from, from, from road users. Uh, this is not sustainable. It already indicates it's not sustainable. There is a there is a deficit in the funding system now. You know, we did not used to have a, a deficit in the funding system 10 years ago, 20 years ago, even 30 years ago. Uh, so... Uh, that should be fixed. Um, there are ways to fix that. Uh, some of them may be harder than others. Uh, the simpler ones around you know, increasing existing charges, that may not be equitable for reasons that some have said that if you've got a lot of projects going in one part of the country, you know, if you're a road user in, in Canterbury, you might think you're being hard done by if you're paying a lot more at the pump uh, and fuel tax uh, to pay for a lot of new roads or light rail in the North Island. So... Uh, there may there are options to deal with it. I think there's efficiency that can be get out of the system, uh, but there needs to be a, a substantial rethink of what is a land transport system for, how do you want to make it work, and uh, where should it be in the long term? Yeah, I was thinking similarly when thinking about a submission. Just We'd expect any incoming government is going to burn parts of this, so why not just recommend burning the whole damn thing, start over, ground up reconsideration of how the whole system operates because whipsawing like this across priorities whenever there's a change in government is nonsense. It doesn't do right by those who want more rail and more public transport or those who enjoy driving their cars on roads. You get just this incredible increase in the cost of doing anything for the reasons you've already outlined. I, I, I think that I think that's right. I, mean, I think an incoming government is going to have to have a GPS uh, because it's going to come up to the year of doing this, I suspect you could you could do it on the basis of, of a year funding, even if you're saying we're going to follow on with existing commitments that are under contract and deal with maintenance and resilience and those key issues. But if you get a signal, you're going to have a fundamental um, look at the sector and restructure it, then it will have life expectancy until a future government makes decisions about what that should look like. And I, I, I think that there has to be change, and there's a whole range of options for how that could look like. Uh, but it has to start off with what do you want the system to achieve? And um, I don't think it's fit for purpose. Agreed. Scott, thank you for walking us through this. And listeners should note that Scott has recently put up a blog post on the history of some of this. And it is well worth having a read through. Uh, we'll put a pointer to it up on the website uh, that goes along with the podcast. But for now, thank you so much, Scott. I'm sure we'll chat again. Thank you, Eric. And thank you, listeners. Take care.